3, 19 through 26. Please rise for the reading of God's word. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in its sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because of his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. This is a powerful passage from Romans 3, and it describes the Christian view of the world. And at its core, this is the Christian philosophy of life. God is the creator, and he revealed his law, his rules for life, if you will, Every person, we're told here, has sinned, that is, has broken that law and is guilty before him. And we know from later in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. The righteousness of God is also revealed through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ who stood in the place of sinners and received God's judgment in our place. This grace is given to all who believe on and receive Jesus and his work on their behalf. Therefore, we're told in this text that God is just and he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. He would, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul understood that this was an all or nothing proposition. He would later write that if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. And this is where Sigmund Freud, the famous psychoanalyst, found himself. A guilty man without a Savior. We have seen that the Bible warns us not to be cheated by philosophy. Even this morning in Sunday school, we were talking about the problem, of course, of false gods. And a false philosophy is just a false god. It's setting up some authority and some standard apart from God, different from God. It is a false god. And just as throughout history, we've been tempted to have false gods and false philosophies, that continues in our day. It's an old problem. Now, the Bible warns us, as I said, not to be cheated by philosophy, but the Bible is not against philosophy, that is, thought and, and thinking about the world and understanding the world. It's not against that per se, but rather uh, it is opposed to false philosophy that is contrary to Christ. 
If Jesus is the truth, then whatever is contrary to him and to his word is false. It's important also to remember that a partial truth is also a lie. And certainly when someone takes part of the truth and makes that piece, tries to make that piece the whole thing, we end up with a big lie. G.K. Chesterton wrote of Darwin, Marx, and Freud, each of them took not so much half-truth, a half-truth as a hundredth part of a truth and then offered it not merely as something, but as everything, having never done anything except split hairs, each of them hangs the whole world on a single hair, whether it be biology, economics, or psychology. These men remind me of a poem you might be familiar with by John Jeffrey Sachs, uh, written in the early 1800s, titled The Blind Man and the Elephant. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each, by observation, might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall against the broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is nothing but a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, Oh, What have we here, so very round and smooth and sharp? To me, tis mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, said, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, Quoth he, "'Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree." The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said, "'E'en the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact, who can? The marvel of an elephant is very like a fan.'" The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope, I see, quoth he, The elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceedingly stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. So oft in theologic wars the disputants, I ween, tread on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prayed about the elephant, not one of them. Has seen. We've looked at Charles Darwin, and we've seen how Darwin offered an alternative explanation of how we got this complex and ordered universe that appears to be designed. Instead of an intelligent designer, instead of God, the impersonal forces of natural selection, given lots and lots of time, can give us, he claims, all that we see. There is no longer a need for God. Not only have we ridded ourselves of a creator, we have also gotten the bonus of ridding ourselves of a judge. Everything has been reduced to the material world. One that Darwin thought was without a planner and without a plan, he thought it was without any purpose whatsoever. 
Nevertheless, many of Darwin's followers have insisted on the concept of progress. Evolutionary progress was the inevitable goal of evolution, and that is the popular view that we have around us now. There was a fundamental idea which lay behind most of the 19th century theories of evolution, evolutionary progress, which was a moral and a religious one, and this is indicated in some of the words written by Havelock Ellis, a contemporary English physician who said, it has been well said that purity, which in the last analysis is physical clearness, is the final result after which nature is ever striving. Now, he didn't tell us what nature is or how it strives or why it strives. It sounds like a person, doesn't it? Um, Maybe it was mother nature. But it was this crypto-theological notion of evolution as an ever upward progress away from earlier forms of animal life and towards spiritual and social perfection, which came to be inseparable from the way that Darwinian biology was received and interpreted, so-called evolutionary progress has become the underlying philosophical assumption and presupposition that drives other fields, such as sociology, psychology, education, science, and politics. Thus, if you want to understand our current political progressives. They assume that they can help accelerate the evolutionary process of mankind, especially with the help of government and academic power and control. And we'll say more about that in a a bit. Now, while there are plenty of others, these three men... Charles Darwin, Sigmund Freud, and Karl Marx are considered three of the great men of the Enlightenment era. In fact, they are seen as the culmination of Enlightenment thought and and have had and continue to have a powerful influence on our culture. The Discovery Institute concluded that, quote, Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, and Sigmund Freud Freud uh, portrayed humans not as moral, spiritual beings, but as animals or machines who inhabit a universe ruled by purely impersonal forces and whose behavior and very thoughts were dictated by the unbending forces of biology, chemistry, and the environment. Now, do you think that view set over against the Christian view is going to yield a different world and a different culture and a different way of looking at life? and how it's lived, and what's acceptable, and what's not acceptable? Absolutely, in every sense of the word. And that's why it's important for us to understand what's at stake here. Ideas have consequences, powerful consequences. Oftentimes those consequences lead to death. The Enlightenment supplanted faith in God and his inscripturated word with faith in man and in nature. Sigmund Freud was a Jewish Austrian neurologist and a founder, the founder of psychoanalyst, uh, psychoanalysis. He was born in 1856 and died in 1939. He was born a couple of years before the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species. Darwin's writings and those of his disciples had a major influence, of course, on the entire field of psychology. But Freud clearly understood and admired Darwin's contribution. 
He built his theory of mind so completely on Darwinism that his biographer, Ernst Jones, said this, uh, quote, he bestowed on Freud the title, The Darwin of the Mind. Freud's method of therapy called psychoanalysis gave birth to or highly influenced nearly all counseling theories, including many psychotherapies that are in existence today. Freud wrote that, quote, the theories of Darwin strongly attracted me for they held out hopes of extraordinary advance in our understanding of the world. And he also wrote that Darwin's Origin of Species was one of the most significant books ever published. And according to Freud, he wasn't just Darwin, but he referred to him as the great Darwin. Freud said this, humanity has in the course of time had to endure from the hands of science two great outrages upon its native self-love. In other words, mankind loves itself, and science has presented two things that turned out to be outrageous and against that self-love. The first came with Copernicus. Quote, when it was realized that our Earth was not the center of the universe, but only a tiny speck in a world system of a magnitude Hardly, hardly conceivable. In other words, what's called the Copernican Revolution. The way we use the word revolution actually came from this. The idea of having to rethink everything, turning everything upside down. So the, the Copernicus Revolution did have to do with how we move around the sun and how the universe moves and so forth. So that was the first one, Freud said. The second came with Darwin, quote, when biological research robbed man of his peculiar privilege of having been specially created and relegated him to a descent from the animal world, implying an irredactable animal nature in him. Got that? Man's not created in the image of God. He is just an animal. Now, later it'll be said he's a higher animal, but we still don't know what makes something higher or lower. But that is the discovery the earth-shattering discovery, the world-changing, the culture-changing strategy or uh, philosophy. Freud declared himself to be an atheist in 1874 while he was still a medical student, influenced by Darwin, who, quote, had undertaken to place man firmly in the animal kingdom. In his book, Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals, Darwin taught the self-preservation theory, which was an idea that was central to his survival of the fittest concept. This theory was then developed by Freud and his followers and was based on the idea that all behavior, your behavior, my behavior, everyone's behavior, what we call good behavior, bad behavior, it is all the result of a few basic animal drives produced by natural selection in order to facilitate survival. Now, there are many things that we could discuss regarding Freud's thinking, much of which would be totally inappropriate for this setting. So I want to hone in on what I think is central to Freud's observation about mankind and his application of Darwinian materialistic assumptions, because I think this is the thing that has the biggest impact on our current culture and even our political divisions, and I think it will help you and me understand the world better, which is what we're called to do as Christians. 
And so uh, Freud recognized that Darwin had, in effect, murdered God, and for that he was grateful, for he was very hostile to religion. Nevertheless, Freud was left with a new problem. His primary concern and the key to his theory was the feeling of guilt. Here's Freud's words. To represent the sense of guilt as the most important problem in the evolution of culture and to convey that the price of programs and civilization is paid by forfeiting happiness through the heightening of the sense of guilt. You remember in my recent series of sermons titled What's Wrong with the World, we reached the Christian conclusion that the problem is sin, and of course, sin produces guilt. Freud recognizes guilt, but he's unwilling to concede that it's a sin because of sin against God. He's looking for some other explanation because he says all of our psychological problems, all of our emotional problems, all of the difficulties we have are rooted in guilt. So back to our text this morning from Romans 3, 19 through 26, our text tells us that God is the lawgiver. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that would be God's creatures, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. God holds up his standard. When we look at it, we recognize we fall short. Scripture goes on to reveal, as we've said before, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, the reason we feel guilty is simple. We are guilty. And that is the Christian view. Moreover, we face a judgment day. Freud sees many of the obvious evidences of man's feelings of guilt along with their devastating effects Thus, he conceded an important part of the truth. There's the elephant again, right? Uh, he, he, he discovers one piece of the truth, that we have this guilt problem, this pervasive sense of guilt. But with God now being dead, thanks to Darwin, he was left with no remedy for guilt. The best man could hope for, according to Freud, was to become aware or enlightened and then try to use his own reason to cope with the tensions between his animal drives and his need to function in this community with other animals. Remember, the Christian view is that even though God has indicted all of humanity and declared them to be guilty, he then, God himself, quickly proclaims that there is a solution, there is a remedy, Again, Romans 3, 21 and 22, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets. In other words, the Old Testament was pointing to Christ, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. There's hope. Yes, you're all guilty, but wait. There's still hope. God himself is doing something about that. The forgiveness of sins... Through the substitute sacrifice, Jesus Christ is the only solution to man's universal problem of guilt. This is the great news. Freud only saw the guilt with no real hope of remedy. So R.J. Rushdoony observed that Freud's concern over the centrality of guilt reveals both his apparent nearness to Christian theology 
and his radical differences from it. Again, I'll go back to the elephant illustration. He's groping around and he discovers this one truth about guilt, but he doesn't get the rest of it. So Freud disassociated guilt from sin, and this association is absolutely necessary in Christian theology. I think this is one of the great attractions, by the way, of most psychology in our day, which is that you're, you are a victim. It is not your fault. Even many Christians prefer psychology's answers over the Bible's for this reason. You see, a medical problem can perhaps be fixed by a pill or by therapy, whereas sin requires taking responsibility, repentance, and a change of behavior. Guilt, Freud rightly recognized, is man's basic problem, and no matter what marvels scientific technology and socialism may bring forth, and he expected a great deal from both of those a guilty man ends up being a poor man uh, amid riches. So Freud recognizes that before anything else can be done for man, the fact of guilt has to be reckoned with. In effect, Freud acknowledged that we are all miserable sinners, but not against God because there is no God for Freud. Now, one of the essential points of the Freudian doctrine was that it universalized the concept of illness Everyone was messed up due to their repressed desires and their feelings of guilt. This was true as far as it went. In the words of Blaise Pascal, the traditional Christian faith rested on two things, the corruption of our nature and the redemption of Jesus Christ. Freud saw the central problem but offered no savior, no redemption, and no hope. At another point, Freud even made the explicit confession to a friend that one of his worst qualities was, quote, a certain indifference to the world. In the depths of my heart, I can't help being convinced that my dear fellow men, with a few exceptions, are worthless. In a letter to another friend and follower, the Protestant minister Oscar Pfister, he amplified this view, quote, I do not break my head very much about good and evil, but I have found little that is good about human beings on the whole. In my experience, most of them are trash. No matter whether they publicly subscribe to this or that ethical doctrine or none at all, if we are to talk of ethics, I subscribe to a high ideal from which most of the human beings I have come across depart most lamentably. From here, Freud constructed a fanciful story about man's primordial past, back when he was basically a beast, driven by base desires, a world full of lust and violence. Now, this can be complicated. I've got three or four or five minutes here now to try to lay before you this story. So I'm just going to give it to you in the most condensed form. And usually it takes 20 times going over this for it to kind of stick. So I'm going to try to give you the quick picture. You got this? Freud's got the problem of guilt. He thinks we're evolved from animals over millions of years, or at least at that point thousands of years. They'll add time to this because they're going to realize they need a lot more time. 
Um, but the whole, um, the whole list of Freudian assertions will develop, such as what will be called later the Oedipus complex. So here's the story he, he constructs out of thin air. This is a, this is a fiction novel. Uh, boys desired their mothers and sisters, so they killed their violent father and ate him. Once upon a time. That's how the story begins. This is Freud's equivalent to original sin. Then, because the boys also loved and admired their father, they felt remorse and guilt. To try to undo what they had done, they created a totem, which is a spirit being that's represented by some sacred object or symbol that serves as an emblem of the dead father, and they declared that this totem could not be harmed or killed. And because they felt guilty, they also suppressed their original desires for their mother and their sisters and refused to take them. And these two fundamental repressed desires, Freud says, the killing of the father and the desire for the women were now suppressed, but they had not gone away. They're baked in the cake. So now man invented gods to try to deal with his guilt. So God didn't create man. Man created God, or gods. That's the basic story. So Freud embraced the idea of one of Darwin's disciples, Lamarck, uh, what we call Lamarckism, who argued for the biological inheritance of acquired characteristics. Over the long history of biological evolution, a host of characteristics developed and accumulated, and they got passed on to subsequent generations. How else could insects, uh, excuse me, instincts of animals and ants and spiders and birds and other things of a similar nature be accounted for? How certain birds and butterflies, you know, like right now the hummingbirds are leaving our area to go to Mexico. That little bitty, you know, one-ounce bird is going to fly to Mexico and come back next year. And they're going to have babies, and those babies are going to grow up, and they're going to fly to Mexico. And, and to make it even more complicated, if you're a monarch butterfly, you can leave. They also go to Mexico. They must know something about Mexico. And they go to the same spot, millions of them. We were caught one time in the migration when we were in college up in Oklahoma, and it was unbelievable. It was a cloud of monarch butterflies, and it's not too good on your windshield. Uh, but they will go and actually have as many as four generations of butterflies, and the fourth generation will fly back to Mexico to the same spot. How do they do that? Well, Lamarck says, well... Over time, maybe they started out in Mexico, and little by little they ventured out and came back, and eventually all this got built into the biology we'd call the DNA. So that's why that fourth generation of butterflies knows where to go. It's just hardwired. It was an acquired characteristic. So they were neither implanted. They were either implanted, which pointed to a supernatural uh, designer, or else they were acquired, which pointed to the natural so Freud adapted this notion to explain why even though we had now gotten rid of God with Darwin, we still feel guilty. The gap between our primal desires and the taboos of society which cause us to repress our desires 
is what's causing us to feel guilty. Bear with me here. If primitive man was so firmly bound, look, if this wasn't so incredible and bizarre, and yet what's happened is it, it has been adapted and adopted, and it is part of our culture. It is everywhere in some form. Now, it gets changed and, and popularized, and, and Freud would disavow some of that himself, but he got the ball rolling here. And it is, it is explaining much of what we're seeing right now in the news, in the world we live in. If primitive man was so firmly bound by this inner law, these in, inherited characteristics, how can modern man, in whom it has far deeper roots, ever hope to escape? You realize your problem is your behavior and your desires and all these things that are driving you came from millions and millions of years of accumulation, and it's hardwired in you. How could you ever hope to escape that? And Freud doubted that you could. He offered no solution to the problem, only an alleged understanding of it. If you adapt his story, oh, now I know why I am the way I am. Now I know why I have all these problems. Now I know why the world is the way it is. That's if you adopt the story that he just told us. And so he offered no solution. Perhaps in, in man's long future history, he might gradually learn to control and to modify his inheritance and to acquire new characteristics. But Freud saw very little likelihood of this. As much as anyone else, Freud wanted a way out for men, and he was ready to search for it in every direction except religiously, especially in biblical religion in particular. He really didn't like Moses. wrote a book about it. He wanted no less than anyone else to deliver man into the green pastures of uninhibited and free sexuality, but no matter how much Many Freudians want it it to be otherwise. Freud himself, despite occasional expressions of hope, he saw it otherwise and correctly so. For to deny God's sovereign and absolute law was also to deny God's way of escape, his sovereign and saving grace. In place of this, Freud had only the sovereign and total power of an infallible inner law with no way of escape and absolutely no grace. Societal self-knowledge was the only possible answer, so Freud constructed notions of man and his personality as being divided into three parts. Again, another fabrication, all of which are the products of biological materialism. I'm going to really give this to you in a condensed form. You probably heard the terms id, ego, and superego. And those can get confusing. I'm going to be super brief here. But he's going to start saying, well, here's the problem. Man's kind of a tripart being. He's got these different things at work inside of him. And, of course, we read about that in Scripture, right? Paul talks about that in Romans 7, for example. So the id is the oldest aspect of man's personality. That's all the stuff he inherited through all the years. It contains everything that's inherited, fixed in man's nature, present at birth, and is instinctual. Everything here is primal. It is unconscious. You don't think about it. It's just there. 
and driven by the desires for pleasure and the avoidance of pain. It wants instant gratification and it has no moral restraints. This can be compared to the Christian equivalent of the first Adam after the fall. The ego, the second part, this aspect of man's personality must interact with the harsh realities of the world that doesn't always cooperate with the desire of his id. And so the ego wants to help fulfill the desires of the id, uh, but is conscious and more cautious as it interacts with the world around you. If you just follow your impulses, that'll get you killed. So the id is there to kind of tamp down or moderate or negotiate or navigate. The ego compares with the mind of man in the broadest sense. Sometimes the ego must repress the desires of the id, and this can lead to what Freud will say is neurosis, things like depression. I can't have what I want. I'm sad. Anxiety. I'm worried. I'm afraid. Obsessive behavior. Hypochondria. In more severe cases, he said, it leads to psychosis, which causes you to lose touch with reality. You might see, hear, or believe things that aren't real. And then there's the third part, the superego. This third aspect of man's personality, which is the successor of the parents and teachers who oversee the actions of the individuals in early life. So you have these authority figures in your life, your parents, teachers, pastors, that kind of thing. The superego can be compared to the conscience, and it's often the enemy of the id. It, it, it's telling you, no, you cannot do that. That is immoral. That is wrong. You can't go there, but you still want to go there. All three of these are in constant interaction and conflict, and Freud says, and you cannot escape that. Now, implications. I want to wrap up this morning by drawing out two of the many important implications of Freudian philosophy and how these notions, which have seeped into our culture, are now being made manifest. First, man is not responsible. According to Freud, you were all born the way you are, and whatever your problems might be, they are not your fault. You are a victim. Sound familiar? Do we have any victims in our culture? Where are they? How many are there? You can't count them, can you? You might be one of them. The Eagles Band has a great song. I've threatened to make it a theme song for my counseling. Um, the title of it is Get Over It. I'm going to read part of the lyrics. I can't read all of them. I'd like to, but I can't. Uh, I turned on the tube, and what do I see? A whole lot of people crying, don't blame me. They point, to their crooked, they point their crooked little fingers at everybody else and spend all their time feeling sorry for themselves, victim of this, victim of that. Your mama's too thin and your daddy's too fat. It's like going to confession every time I hear you speak. You're making the most of your losing streak. Some call it sick. I call it weak. You drag it around like a ball in a chain. You wallow in the guilt. You wallow in the pain. You wave it like a flag. You wear it like a crown. Got your mind in the gutter, bringing everybody down. And it goes on. Of course, in the Freudian view, all sexual behavior, no matter how deviant, 
must not only be tolerated, it must be approved of. You know that you Christians make everyone else feel guiltier than they already feel, and they can't help it, and they're not responsible, and you're just mean and cruel for pointing that out. There are endless examples of this kind of blame shifting and excuse making since no one is responsible. It is your long evolutionary past. It is your parents and your grandparents and your teachers and your church and your culture. It is everyone and everything but you. One psychiatrist who exposed the fallacies of this approach to helping clients was Carl Menninger, founder of the Menninger Clinic. In his 1974 book, Whatever Became a Sin, Menninger recognized that the idea of being ruled by our biology and that, and that misbehavior was a result of inappropriately met needs that became part of the human condition as a result of evolution was erroneous, false. Menninger concluded that the biblical teaching of personal responsibility for accepting the reality of sin and then endeavoring to deal with it is central to good mental health. The second, so the first is nobody's responsible and everybody's a victim. The second is progressivism. We already mentioned that. I said I would get back to it. While Freud himself was basically hopeless regarding man's guilt, remember he thought most human beings were trash, many of his followers were way more optimistic. They did think there are a few people who are enlightened, and this enlightened elite might be able to make things better. Perhaps they could at least expedite the evolutionary process. This can become to be, come to be known as social Darwinism. Certain politicians and educators, remember certain politicians and educators and influencers, given enough power and money, could help direct the deplorable masses and enable us to move a few rungs, perhaps, up the evolutionary ladder. There's a presumption here that we know where that ladder is and where it's going. This idea has given us first Adolf Hitler and then a long list of other totalitarian socialist leaders and cultures who set out to save and improve the human race. usually involves culling the human race. Abortion euthanasia, eugenics, concentration camps, and government schools, all in the name of science, could perhaps become our savior. Your unquestioning belief in science is critical to progressives. Take their word for it. A totalitarian state is needed to ensure growth without anarchy. Freud, again, let me not just make that statement. I want to back it up here. Freud, again, expressed both his pessimism and his hope in Why War, which was um, an exchange of letters between Freud and Albert Einstein uh, that was published. Freud said the answer to war is some kind of world order stronger than the League of Nations. And now I quote him. Wars will only be prevented with certainty if mankind unites in setting up a central authority to which the right of giving judgment upon all conflicts of interest shall be handed over. 
There are clearly two separate requirements involved in this. The creation of a supreme authority and its endowment with the necessary power. Continuing, the ideal condition of things would, of course, be a community of men who had subordinated their instinctual life to the dictatorship of reason. And for Freud, this dictatorship of reason meant a total total power like that of Plato's philosopher kings, enlightened rulers with absolute power. Freud both hoped for and denied the hope. Here's what he said. Nothing else could unite men so completely and so tenaciously, even if there were no emotional ties between them, but in all probability, that is a utopian expectation. The religious concept of guilt he had warned against had atonement through Christ. Freud's concept merely doomed man to endless self-punishment and made his will to live by implication a servant of the will to death. Again, R.J. Rushduni observed, and having denied sin, he also denied salvation, for in reducing guilt to biology, he had no way of enabling man to transcend his biology and hence transcend or escape his biological sense of guilt. His biological myth and anthropological myth had become the new dimensions of man's hell. In Freud's world, man's problem is a sickness, and he needs a psychologist or a psychiatrist to heal him. Man does not need, uh, excuse me, in, in Freud's view, man does need to be born again, but that rebirth can only come, but probably won't, when man learns to forgive himself. No more judgment. Only love. Love wins, right? Darwin and Freudian, Darwinian and Freudian philosophy seek to provide alternative realities by offering new origins, a new diagnosis, and in the end, an empty hope in a chance universe with no plan or purpose whatsoever. This is the world we live in now. This is a world in darkness. This is a world that needs light. And that light is Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we might see you clearly. Open our ears that we might hear your living word. Open our hearts that we might turn to you alone. Expose the half-truths and the lies that have turned us into fools And use your people to be lights that point to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For for a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. 
Jesus loves sinners, but he has no affinity for what I'll call piddlers, those who play around the edges of following him. He calls for those who are serious to take up their cross and to follow him, which means all the way. He would rather have a few go through the narrow gate and enter the narrow path and who will not deny him. This is why the Apostle Paul exhorts Pastor Timothy, pastor at the church at Ephesus, while Paul was in prison, and he writes this last letter to this young pastor to exhort him and encourage him. And he says, look, there's going to be some rough times. The culture around you is not going to always do what we want it to do. It's not going to always want to hear you, but you, I want you to do this. And so these are really almost Paul's last words before he leaves this world. And he says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And we've been talking about some of those teachers who scratch those itches, who tell you it's not your fault, who tell you you shouldn't feel that way because it, you're a victim who, on and on. So because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Amen. Almighty God, who spoke to the prophets that they might make your will and purpose known, bless your church, the pillar and ground of the truth, the guardian of your word. Conform our minds to yours, and may our lips speak your truth. Take our hearts and kindle them with love for you. Manifest that same love in us as we love one another. What we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, give us. What we are not, make us. For Jesus Christ's sake. Grant us, Lord, that from the written word and from our spoken word, men and women may come to see the incarnate word through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen.